This morning we are continuing at our look into 2 Corinthians on this theme of a testimony of the cross as we get ready and prepare for Easter Sunday here in a number of weeks. So take your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 3 this morning. And just by way of reminder, a couple weeks ago when we started off this series, uh, Pastor Tim was uh, instructing us and teaching from 2 Corinthians on forgiveness and how um, in Christ, because of Christ's work, we not only are forgiven, but because of that are called also to forgive and to restore, that restoring a repentant person to fellowship testifies to the forgiveness of offered through Christ on the cross. And then last year, we uh, talked about believers and how our lives are to testify to the work of the cross, to Christ's victorious work on the cross, that our joy and our hope and our peace are to be found in Jesus. And to the degree that that is true, we are either found as an aroma of life or an odious stench to those who are perishing. And this morning, we are continuing... Uh, and we will be looking at how followers of Christ are supernaturally transformed into the likeness of Jesus, into the likeness of Christ according to the power of the Holy Spirit. Followers of Christ are supernaturally transformed into the likeness of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together in uh, honor and reverence of the Word of God handed down to us today through centuries and through blood and through sacrifice and through the faithfulness of our God. This is the word of the Lord, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, Delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory." Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will that which is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze on the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ 
is it taken away? Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. May the Lord of the Word bless it this morning. Go ahead and be seated. So before we dive in directly to chapter 3 here, um, Paul in, in, in chapter 2, actually in verse 1 of chapter 3, kind of Paul is anticipating an attack. He's just gotten through in chapter 2 explaining how he's led in pri- a triumphal procession. He's, he's, uh, a fragrance of, he's spreading the fragrance of knowledge. He's the aroma of Christ, death to death, life to life. He's this very polarizing figure. He's not a peddler of the word like so many. He sets himself apart. He says he's a man of sincerity. He's commissioned by God. He's seen by God. He speaks in Christ. And then in in verse 2 of chapter 3, he explains to the Corinthians that they are his letter of recommendation, that he is a pen in the hand of God. And so the first thing out of Paul's mouth or out of Paul's pen here in chapter 3 is an anticipation of an attack by his opponents who would say, here Paul goes again, commending himself. Verse 1 says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? The we here is he, he and Timothy who are on this missionary journey together. Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Verse 2, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul has no need for self-commendation. He knows and says elsewhere that it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So Paul's appeal in defense of his own ministry is not letters from some unknown entity, some third party, but the Corinthians themselves. And letters, letters themselves are not, in, in and of themselves, a bad thing. In fact, it was very common in the early churches, and it is a good idea today to not hand your pulpit up to anyone who walks down the street and says, hey, I'd like to preach at your church on Sunday. I'm a dynamic poet. Um, but we ought to know the people who are, who are teaching us. And that was just as true then as, as it is today. Um, Apollos, even, in, in, uh, in Acts, it was explained that on his way to Ephesus, he was sent with a letter, I'm sorry, uh, by the Ephesians on his way to Achaia, Apollos was sent a letter of recommendation by the Ephesians. And this made sense because where Apollos was going into Achaia, he was not known. So it made sense that the church leaders would send him with a letter of recommendation. The difference here is that Paul has been with the Corinthians for years already. This is uh, not the first time that he has been with them. On his second missionary journey, uh, he visits Corinth, and he preaches the gospel, and the church is formed, and people are saved. And now, a year or two later, he's revisiting them again. He's saying, what need have I for a letter of recommendation? You yourself are my letter of recommendation. You know me, 
and your lives bear testimony that you've received the gospel I've preached and you've been transformed by it. So Paul does not need a letter of recommendation. He instead appeals to the relationship that he has with the Corinthians and the change that's taken place in their lives because of the work of the gospel, because of the work of Christ. He appeals to the gospel fruit, to the ministry of Christ in their midst. The Corinthians had been and were being transformed by the gospel. This wasn't a work of Timothy. It wasn't a work of Paul. It was a work of God. And if you're following along in your notes, your first blank there, aside from the summary statement this morning, is God did it. God did it. The Corinthians had been and were being transformed by the gospel, and this was a work of God. God did it. Paul and Timothy were merely the mail carriers. He says that you yourselves are a letter of recommendation, written on hearts, read by all. You show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, that Paul and Timothy here were merely delivery men, merely mail carriers on this, this letter from Christ represented by the lives, the very lives of the Corinthian church. And here, too, he goes on to make the first allusion to what's going to be a major theme in our passage this morning, this, this allusion to the Old Covenant, saying that this letter was written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And here Paul alludes to, of course, the Old Covenant and the, the giving of the Ten Commandments where Moses went up to Mount Sinai and, and uh, God, with his own finger, Exodus says, delivered the, the law to Moses to bring down to the Israelites. This is Paul's first of several allusions to the Old Covenant. Tablets of stone versus tablets of human hearts. Going on, verse uh, four and four through six. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Now, remember the confidence that Paul comes to the table with here is not a confidence uh, that comes from his, himself. It's not a self confidence. He's not commending himself. He recognizes that the work is, is from God. We, uh, he has confidence through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In 2 Corinthians, Paul uh, rhetorically asks, who is sufficient for these things? As he's talking through his ministries, he's talking through the gospel and the weight of, uh, of the ministry that he's been given, he says in 2 Corinthians 2.16, who is sufficient for these things? And of course, he doesn't, doesn't answer the question, it's a rhetorical question, but the idea is, of all of the weight of ministry that Paul has been given, who can shoulder this burden? Paul recognizes he is not sufficient for this work. Who is sufficient for these things? The ministry is heavy, but Paul's confidence comes from God. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ Jesus towards God. Through Christ towards God. The ministry comes from God. It's not from Paul. It's not from Timothy. The ministry comes from God. God did it. God has done the work in the, in the Corinthians. God has done the work in Paul and Timothy's life. God is the one who is at work. And the Corinthians are a testimony of 
God's power, of the power at work, not only in Paul and Timothy, but in their own midst as well. Paul and Timothy's ministry is a testimony of God's power. Here again, we have another allusion to the, the, the old covenant and uh, less of an allusion, more, more explicit. He calls it uh, an old covenant versus a new covenant here. Our sufficiency is from God, verse 6, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, again, not of the, the written letter in stone, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. <clears throat> He's referring here to, again, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and a covenant is, is an agreement. It's a, it's, a, it's a will, it's a treaty, it's a legal agreement, and God has made multiple covenants through redemptive history as to how he would interact with his people, how people are supposed to behave, what they're supposed to do in order to have a relationship with him. And here, the the old covenant being referenced is a covenant based on blessings for adherence to a law and curses for breaking that law. Um, I'm I'm reading through the Bible in a year again this year, and and, uh, the first quarter of the year or so is always kind of a a slow burn um, because of how heavy the law is. It goes through in very specific and explicit detail as to what can and can't be done and who can do what and what they have to wear when they do it. Um, Some things that we would agree with about, you know, not murdering your brothers and others about like what you do if you find mildew in your house. And it just goes on and on and on. But this was the Old Covenant. This was the Mosaic Law. This was the rule that the Israelites were expected to live by, and there was always a consequence pinned to every law. If you don't do this, this happens. You don't do this, this happens. And the the center section of, of the Old Testament is full of the consequence of death for the Israelites for constantly disobeying this law, this law that as we'll see, brings death. There's death at every turn. Not only death for the people who break these laws, but death for the myriad of animals who have to be slaughtered as a result of the law breaking so that the people themselves are not destroyed. So there's death at every turn in this, in this ministry of the, the old covenant. Paul and Timothy are sufficient, made sufficient by God to be ministers of a new covenant not, on the le- not of the letter of the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And he goes on to describe more of these, these two covenants. In verse 7, says, Now if the ministry of death, which might be a good heavy metal band name if anyone's looking for one, um, carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Maybe that's your Christian metal band name. I don't know. Um, For if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, which which there was, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpassed it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory much more will what is permanent have glory. So here Paul calls the the old covenant, the the law, the ministry of death in verse 7, and the ministry of condemnation in verse 9. 
It was carved in stone. It wasn't a line in the sand. It was etched in stone. It was a standard literally written in stone by the finger of God. And it amounted to a, a prescription for consequence. It didn't, have, it didn't provide a way for people to be saved. It simply pointed out what could and could not be done and how to deal with it when it did happen. It was a diagnosis of the problem. And yet it came with glory. When Moses went into the tent of meeting to meet with Yahweh, to meet with God, um, he goes in, he speaks directly with God. It says, as, as a man fa- speaks face to face, and he came out and his face was glowing whenever he did this. And, and so he, he ended up wearing a veil over his face whenever he would come out to share the words of God with the people of Israel so that they wouldn't see his shining face because he had been with God. I mean, it was, it was glorious. This ministry of death was a glorious, a glorious ministry. And the Old Covenant came with a weight of glory such that Moses' face shone. And then Moses would go back into the tent of meeting. He'd meet with God. He'd take the veil off. Face gets charged up again. I don't know, you know, biologically how that works, but this is what happened. And then he comes out. He has to put the veil back over as he talks again to the people of Israel. So there was a glory to the Old Covenant. There was a glory to what Moses was delivering and receiving uh, from God and to the people. But it was temporary. The glow, the glow that took over Moses' face didn't last. It faded, and then he'd go back into the tent, and it would charge up again, and come out, and he was glowing again. It was temporary. Because the old covenant was never intended to be part of God's permanent plan for his people, it was merely there to diagnose their problem. And Jeremiah 31, 33 says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. This is prophesying the new covenant, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In Theological terms, this, this is explained as progressive revelation or a, a dispensational understanding of how God deals with people over the course of time. So as you read through Scripture and as humanity marches through history, we see more and more of God's character and more and more of his plans for how he deals with, with people. He's building concept upon concept. And the first uh, the most important thing, really, of the, of the Old Covenant is recognizing our inability, Israel's inability, our own inability to law keep. We're not good law keepers. God gives us a law and we break it. We're not consistent in this whatsoever. But it's necessary. Again, it did come with glory. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six says, The sting of death is sin. Sin is law breaking. And the power of sin is the law. We know that a thing is sin because it is contrary to the law. Galatians 3 says, so then the law was our guardian or our schoolmaster, our tutor, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. And back to the 1 Corinthians passage, verse 57 this time, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the law is there to point out sin. It's there to Show us Christ, our need for a Savior. 
And thanks be to God that a new covenant has been inaugurated in the death of Christ. And we celebrate that every time we we take communion, right? This is my blood which is shed uh, for the remission of sins. And this is my blood in the new covenant. Christ inaugurates this new covenant and makes a way for lawbreakers to be right with him. He gives us a promise of life and that cure that the old covenant couldn't deliver. So what is the greater glory here? If, if, if the old covenant came with glory, and that glory was the shining, shining face of Moses as a representation, what is this greater glory that Paul is, is alluding to here? If there was a glory in the ministry, verse, verse 9, of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness much far exceeded in glory. So I'm, I'm looking out, I don't see any shining faces. I've never seen any shining face after someone gets home from a Bible study, at least not in a, in a, in a physical sense like Moses had. So where's the greater glory? And I think our temptation in the church is to manufacture stuff like this and come up with parlor tricks. I've had you know, a lot of conversations, I'm sure you have too, over the course of time with people who will go to some sort of revival meeting or some, some uh, very charismatic uh, evangelist, and they'll say, you know, the guy up front, he was, I remember talking to one guy about this, they, he was said that there was going to be fire that would rush over the crowd, and I felt the heat, man, I like, whoa, like there was heat that came off, and or uh, talking to someone else about some dream that they had about, you know, they were having problems with the relationship, and they saw an angel with a light sword that came and divided them. It's like, okay, but what, like, is that glorious? Like, what, what is, is that what Paul is talking about here? Are those the kinds of things that we should expect? Or is there a greater glory in the new covenant? And I would contest that what Paul is saying here, and what we ought to buy into, is that the greater glory of the new covenant is not manifested in shiny faces or hot feelings, but is manifested in transformed and changed hearts and lives, as has happened with the Corinthians, that they are a letter written not with a pen, but by the Spirit. They're a letter from Christ. They themselves testify to the glory of the new covenant. That is the greater glory, a transformed life. And a transformed life bears testimony to the work of Christ. Moses' face may have shined and faded and shined and faded, but the Christian's life grows and grows and grows and reflects more and more the character of the Christ that he or she loves. And unlike the old covenant, this is a permanent covenant. This is a permanent work. This is not a work that fades. This is that progressive revelation that we see from God where here at the, the end of the age, as, it, as it's described oftentimes in, in the New Testament, God has shown us where righteousness comes from, that comes from faith in his son. And it's borne out not only in the life to come in heaven, but also, also in the here and now. And so this new covenant, because it is greater in glory, eclipses the old covenant. We're not bound by the old law. It's like the moon. Like I, I like going outside at night. I have this app on my phone that you can, you can hold up your phone and see the stars on your phone and it you like move around physically and the stars move on your, on your uh, phone and it'll show you where the planets are. I've noticed in the last few weeks, uh, Jupiter and Venus are really bright out on the horizon, just like, I don't know, eight o'clock, nine o'clock or so. Um, and I li- I, even as a kid, I remember like laying out on trampolines at friends' houses and just looking up at the sky and thinking like, oh man, there's, there's probably aliens out there and having these fun discussions and things. But it's, it's fascinating and it's glorious. And especially when the moon is bright, like walking around outside when the moon is bright, you don't need a flashlight, and there's this weird 
aura to walking around in sort of twilight with a full moon, and it's glorious, it's amazing, but when the sun comes up, the moon, the moon goes away. It's not that the moon's evaporated, obviously, the moon is still out there, but because of the greater glory of the sun, you can't see the moon. The moon doesn't shine with a light, with a light of its own. As the moon is lost at the rising of the sun, though in the night's darkness it shone with prominence in the starry sky, so too is the glory of the old covenant eclipsed by the resurrection of Christ and by his blood, which speaks to us a better word. Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 18 through 24 puts it this way, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of those whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages may be spoken. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountains, it shall be stoned. Ministry of death. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Ministry of condemnation. But you have come to Mount Zion, And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the new covenant. This is what Paul is referring to that exceeds that of the old, it eclipses the glory of the old because it comes with a greater glory because it's not temporary, it's permanent. Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. The hope of the new covenant. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. There's a spiritual blindness that falls not only on adherents of the Old Covenant, but on on Gentiles as well. And Paul, I've got to be thinking, as he's writing this, is thinking through his own conversion as well, right? He's saying, look, when the, when the law is read, the Jews, there's this, there's this veil over their eyes. They can't see. They can't see the glory of the new covenant. But his testimony, his own testimony, is in verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. You remember when Paul was uh, out persecuting the church, and he's... he's He's on a road ready to go attack the church, and the Lord Jesus shows up to him. This is Paul, well, Saul at the time, why are you persecuting me? And then, uh, so uh, Saul is made blind, he ends up being led <clears throat> away, and is, then the Lord speaks to other people in the church, and Ananias comes to Paul, still Saul at this point, and he says, he says in Acts 9, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road which you came, on which you came has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Paul himself experienced this. He, he, he had that veil over his life and over his understanding 
Um, but when he saw Christ on the, on the, the, road, the Damascus road, he regained his sight. Ananias lays hands on him. His sight is regained. And his sight is regained because he saw Christ. He had an experience with Christ. And so Paul is saying the same thing in verse 16, that the situation is not completely hopeless. There's hope for the Jews. When one turns to the Lord, as Paul had, the veil is removed. And there's hope, too, for not just, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles have not necessarily that same veil, right, that, that, that uh, was over the Jews when they look into the Old Covenant, but there's a blindness, too, that comes over all men, Jew, Jew or Gentile. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That veil also is lifted when we look to Christ, when they look to Christ. So the veil had been removed from Paul's heart. This is something that God did. The Corinthians, the Corinthians themselves were a letter from Christ, something that God did. This was a work that they did within them. And if you haven't caught on by now, your blanks on your whole sheet is just, God did it, God did it, God did it. I don't usually fill out outlines when I'm listening, so I'm probably, therefore, not very good at creating outlines for you. But... Um, that's, those are your blanks there. This is God's work. God does the work in Jews. God does the work in Gentiles. And he does it by their looking at Christ, looking at the gospel. It's where the, the veil is lifted when we see Jesus. There is hope. There is hope for the blind. And the hope is the hope of the gospel. The new covenant sets people free in verse, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's freedom in the gospel. There's freedom in the new covenant. And we can take advantage of that freedom when we see, when we see Jesus. Under the new covenant, there's no condemnation due to law-breaking. And more than that, it, it, it's not, Christianity is not just a look forward to heaven, like a, okay, I, I, I've, I've done my business with God, I've been cleansed in some metaphorical sense by the blood of Jesus, so when I die and get up to the pearly gates, I'll be able to have them punch my ticket. There's a work that happens actually in the here and now. Elsewhere in scripture, Paul is explaining or talking about the resurrection, and he says, you know, if, if for this life only we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied above all men. He's like, when we die, there is another place that we go. There is a resurrection from the dead, and Paul's saying, if, if for this life only we have hope, we're to be pitied. But I, I want us to kind of consider that assumption that Paul is making that we do have hope for this life. Heaven is coming and you'll be made perfect in the blink of an eye. As you see him perfectly, you'll be made perfect. We have those promises. But there is a real sanctification and a change that happens on this side of heaven that we have hope for. Like, if we only have hope in this life, then yeah, we're to be pity above all men because there is a resurrection. But let's, let, let's look at like that. There actually is a real hope for your sanctification on this side of heaven. You can actually be transformed as you look to Christ. You can be transformed into the image of his glory. Verse 18, we all with unveiled face. Now, he says we all here. 
up until now, the we has been mostly Paul talking about he and Timothy, defending their ministry, things that they said that we said. But here he's changing it to, and we all. This is the church. These are people who know Christ. These are people who one day will be resurrected. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the image, into the same image, into the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In life, this is sort of just a general truism, I guess, the things that we look at, the things that we stare at, the things that we love, the things that take up our time, have a way of transforming us. Um, I think about like, like teaching, teaching my kids how to ride a bike. When they get on the bike and they're ready to go, it's like, okay, pick up your head, look, look where you want to go, because you're going to go where you are looking, and if you're looking down at the ground, you're going to end up on the ground, and invariably that's what happens. Um, I, I, in high school, uh, rode a unicycle a lot, and that was one of the biggest things when people were like, how do you ride this thing? It was like, well, you have to keep your head up, and you have to look where you want to go. If you're looking down, you're going to end up on the ground. Or with sports, right? Like, what do we always tell, tell kids? Keep your eye on the, on the ball, right? Because our focus has a tendency of driving, uh, of driving the rest of our bodies. And so, too, with Christ. When we focus on Christ, we become like Christ. Um, I was, in, in doing some research for, <laughs> for this sermon, I found this fun Instagram feed um, that, Bill, maybe you could bring up. People actually have a tendency to even look like they're pets sometimes. So like, I mean, this was probably a contest for like dress your dog up, like you or whatever, but um, you can go to the next one. Right. The, things that we, the things that we love, the things that we spend time with, and maybe, you know, you're purchasing this dog because it looks like you, I don't know, but go ahead. <laughs> Move on. Yeah. That was a crazy one. This next one is my favorite, though. I love that one. It's hilarious. So we, we do have a tendency to, to take on the attributes of the things that we follow or the things that we love, the things that we appreciate. Um, they've actually done studies on this with, with spouses as well. Have you ever noticed that people who have been married to each other a long time kind of look like each other? They, they actually did this study where they took all these pictures of people who, who had been married, um, they took pictures of them at year one, and then they, they had other pictures of them at year 25. And I don't know all the ins and outs of how they, how they did this, this research, but they basically a- asked people, asked participants in this survey to try and pair up, pair up these spouses based just on, on how they looked. And it's actually a proven fact that over the course of 25 years of marriage, you physically look more and more like the person that you're married to. And there, you know, there's, there's uh, environmental uh, reasons for that. You know, obviously, if you're married, you're probably living in the same place, so you're getting sunburned about the same amount of time, or if you're in the snow, your skin is reacting to temperature, that kind of thing. But the, the main thing that they found is that is the, the social reactions, where when you're talking with someone, you have a tendency to mimic their face, so if they're, if they're sad, you kind of have a sad face on, or if they're happy, you have a happy face on. And over the course of 25 years, these you know, little tiny muscles build up in your face, and you kind of sort of start to look like that person. 
Of course, it's different with Christ, right? Christ, when we follow Christ, it's a, it's, it's a supernatural transformation that takes place in our lives. This is not just like being an Elvis impersonator and all you do is put on some sequence and, and, and move your hips around. The, the work of Christ penetrates to our soul and changes our very nature. We're taken from an old man, as the scripture says, to, to a new man. H.A. Ironside says, Christianity is not the natural life lived on a higher plane. It's a divine life manifested in the energy of the Holy Spirit. We are being transformed. 1 John 2.6 says, Whoever says he abides in him, whoever says that he abides in Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That makes sense. As we love Christ, as we look to Christ, as we follow Christ and rely on Christ and spend time with Christ, that our face starts to shine. Christian, the, the word Christian itself means Christ follower. So as we follow Christ, we have to look like him. Or, or to borrow language from last, last week's sermon, we'll start to smell like him. We'll have that, that aroma, the aroma of Christ. I couldn't help, as I put, put the sermon together this week, to be at, at sometimes fairly discouraged by the many ways in which I don't look like, smell like, sound like, Christ. I was confronted by, by Jesus' words in John 7. It says, he said, whoever believes in me, this, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And I wonder if you feel that way this morning. Do you, do you feel like there are living, living water, rivers of living water flowing out of your heart? This this hope can bring a certain discouragement to us because as we look at Christ, we see how much we don't resemble him. So it's kind of an awkward message to prepare uh, when I just consider how much of Christ has yet to be formed in me. I mean, I think, I think about <laughs> probably my children have it hardest of anyone. Like, they're not bathing in a river of life daily living in a house with me. Um, they have a rough go of it oftentimes. Sometimes it's helpful as we read Scripture and are, are challenged and confronted with difficulties to, to read in different translations. Um, I think probably we suffer from a glut of translations. It can be confusing, but it is nice. It's a real luxury that we have as English speakers to like, oh, what does this translation say? What does this translation say? Listen to how this verse, verse 18, is rendered in the King James Version. I hope you find this encouraging. I did. Um, but we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord, beholding as in a glass. Mirrors in the ancient world were polished metal um, or, or glass, but it wasn't like pane glass we have today that's basically transparent. There are many imperfections. And Paul's saying here that as we see Christ, we reflect Christ. We, we show him to others. But it's done in an, in an imperfect way. It's, it, it's as through a glass. It's beholding as in a glass. 
there is always this imperfection at work because, because of who we are as men. And we ought, we ought to remember that. Regardless, the solution is always to look to Christ. When, we, when we're disappointed with our progress in the faith, when we're disappointed in our sanctification levels, when we're impatient with our children, when we're impatient with our spouse, when we think the people that I work with in my workplace are not experiencing this flowing river of life out of my heart, the solution, the answer is to look at him. If we're not looking like him, it's likely because we're not looking at him. And there can be a few different reasons for this, why we, why we wouldn't look at him or why we wouldn't be transformed by him. Uh, one, one of them is just that not spending the time, not putting in the time. I mean, when, are, you, are you regularly in the word? Are you regularly in prayer? Are you, is your mind meditating upon the truths of Christ and on the gospel? Is he, does he take up your field of vision on any, on any given day? Alan Redpath, on uh, his commentary in this section, says this, Is there any light getting through? Is any of the glory of God getting through to others through your life? If not, perhaps it is because the pressures upon you are so great. In your home, in the care of that precious little family, in your responsibilities in business life, in the pressure of study, be careful that the price in terms of eternity is not too great. Be careful to recognize that if the light is not getting through, it is because you are not looking at him long enough. Are you looking at him long enough? You know, it's like someone who is going on a diet and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm on this diet and I am just not losing weight. I don't know what's happening. And I say, well, explain, what's your, what does your diet look like? And like, well, I eat anything I want all week long, but on Sunday I have a salad. I just don't know what's, going, what's, what's wrong. Um, so too, in our, in our pursuit of Christ, if you're not changing and this is all you have on a weekly basis, this salad is, is probably not enough. It's certainly not enough. Get rid of probably. We need to be communing with the Lord daily. I think we can, we can have uh, the opposite extreme as a problem as well, where we have this, this uh, lawish, extreme um, self-sufficiency at work in us that actually, in kind of a weird way, stands opposed to your progress in the faith, where you're not recognizing that it is God's work, that God has done it, but you're relying on your own ability to refine yourself and to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Alan has, has words for you as well. Are you battling with yourself, defeated in life, going down under the buffeting? You face so many battles. None of us stands above you in this because you, we, know it is in, uh, we know it is in all of our hearts, but we would gladly tell you the good news that you overcome not by battling, but by faith. You overcome not by inward struggle, but by upward look. Any battle for victory, power, and deliverance from ourselves and from sin, which is not based constantly upon the gazing and beholding of the Lord Jesus, with the heart and life lifted up to him, is doomed to failure. So either way, we look to him. And I think that, that, that that's what I want us to take away from this morning, is that in our pursuit of Christ, in our enjoyment of the new covenant, in our desire to see the glory of the new covenant come to fruition in our lives, the answer is always to look to Jesus. If we're not looking like him, 
perhaps we are not rightly looking at him. And I want to encourage you too that you know, we're oftentimes our own, our own worst critics in life, and I think that's maybe particularly applicable to the Christian life, where we look at Christ and we see this glorious, amazing Savior, and we read people, we read about people like, you know, like Wycliffe and, and, and uh, Martin Luther, um, George Whitfield, these greats of the faith, and we're like, that dude got up at 3 a.m. to pray for six hours before he did anything in the day? And I remember I was listening to a podcast this week, and I don't remember exactly who it was, but it was some quote essentially saying, if you are, you know, I, I had so much to do, I don't remember, you know, exactly what he had to do, but my day was so busy that I prayed twice as long because I had to get through all these things. You know, like I, I need the Lord's favor. I need the Lord's power. I need the Lord's strength. So I need to pray twice as much because I have so much to do today. Like that is not my reaction ever. And so we look, we look at the perfection of Christ, we look at the, the amazing lives of, of saints who have gone before us, and it can be, it can be discouraging, but I want, to, I want to encourage you to look at your life and, and determine whether or not you have been changed. If you have been changed at all, God has done that. People don't change themselves in this way. If there's a battle with sin, God does that. If you're battling with sin, if you're convicted by sin, if you want more than you have, God does that. That doesn't come from a fallen life who hates God. Do you want out from under your besetting sin? God does that. Robert Murray McShane, who's a 19th, uh, 19th century Scottish preacher, said, it is a sure mark of grace to desire more. To desire more grace. Do you want more grace? If you want more grace, it is a sure mark that you have received grace, and you should be encouraged by that. The Christian life and this progressive sanctification is kind of a good news, bad news situation. The bad news is that you will never arrive, that there's not enough time left in your life to be perfected. It doesn't matter if you're five years old or 85 years old, there's just not enough time left. There's that much wrong with you. You will not get there. The struggles will continue. You will continue to be disappointed with yourself and with others. Christ will not be perfectly formed in you. There's too much work and not enough time. But there's good news in that you haven't missed the boat. You're not behind the schedule. God is the one who is at work with you. If you are upset, be careful how I say this, but Ultimately, if Christ is the one who is doing the work in your life to transform you and to put you into his image and that power doesn't come from yourself, ultimately it's God who is the one who is leading you along. He knows where you're at. He knows where you need to be. We have a part to play in that. I'm not saying that we just sit back and let Christ do all the work, but ultimately he is the one doing the work. The Spirit is at work. So our frustrations with our own sanctification to some extent kind of fall on him, right? That God is the one who leads us along. And sometimes he forces us into the, uh, I won't say force, but we, we find ourselves in besetting sin for the purpose of, of humbling us and for valuing the cross. Now that doesn't ever give license to sin. We don't sin that grace would abound. But without it, you know, we don't have that strong sense of, of the grace of God so it is good news. There's also promises. You know, as I think, think back to that, the passage that I read earlier that Jesus talked about that kind of 
got me discouraged, John 7, Jesus says, whoever believes in me as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, as the scriptures have said. It's actually a promise that if you follow me, this is going to happen. Philippians 1.6, we're all familiar with, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And even embedded within our own passage, our passage here this morning, verse 18, Paul says that as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image, into the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another, to another, to another. We don't look to Christ and immediately get pounded into a cookie cutter that looks just like him, but from one degree of glory to the next, day by day, struggle by struggle, difficulty by difficulty, diagnosis by diagnosis, we're transformed into the image of the one to whom we're looking. So are you looking to Christ? Are you spending time with him? Are you treasuring him? Are you becoming more like him as you see him more clearly? Are you being transformed and reflecting him like a mirror? A mirror needs only to be positioned to reflect the light. Like the moon, a mirror doesn't shine out light of its own. It shines out the light of another. It doesn't need a degree. A mirror doesn't need a degree or a certain personality type or a certain amount of free time or to be a particular age or to be married or to have children or to have some certain disposition or to be unscarred by a lifetime of sins and mistakes. It needs only to be oriented towards the glorious light of the sun or, or whatever other object. Is, and, and the photons do the rest. All the mirror does is stand there and reflect. The problem with an unshining mirror is not the mirror itself. A mirror in the dark reflects nothing. That, that's true. But if you move it into the light, it shines. Like a waxing moon, our position relative to the sun is everything. So are you oriented towards Christ? Are you reflecting that glory? Take in Christ and spend time in his glory. Be patient with yourself. We say with Paul, you know, who is sufficient for these things? We sigh with Paul, who is sufficient for these things? But verse 5, our sufficiency is from God. Our sufficiency is from him. Let me close with... Uh, Alexander McLaren here, this was poetic enough to end a sermon on. Uh, the, the sunshine must fall on us, not as it does on some lowly, uh, lonely hillside, lighting up the gray stones with a passing gleam that changes nothing and fades away, leaving the solitude to its sadness, but as it does on some cloud cradled near its setting, which it drenches, drenches and saturates with fire till its cold heart burns and all its wreaths of vapor or brightness palpable, glorified by the light which lives amidst its mists. So must we have the glory sink into us before it can be reflected from us. In deep inward beholding, we must have Christ in our hearts that he may shine forth from our lives. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly. 
but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Father in heaven, we thank you for this hope that you give us. This hope that uh, we can be transformed into the glorious image of Christ. That ultimately one day, yes, we will be uh, completed, that work will be completed in the day of Christ. We will be slammed into that mold. We will be wrought in Christ. And yet, here and now, on the day-to-day, we have the hope of sanctification because of the work of Christ for us. We actually can be transformed. Not by our own work, not by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, but by beholding Christ because it is, it is Christ's work. The same Christ, the same Spirit who is at work in the Corinthian church, the same Spirit who is at work in Paul and Timothy, the same, the same Spirit who is at work in raising Christ from the dead is also at work in us by faith. We thank you for that hope, God, and we pray that, that we would hold on to it and be encouraged by it, even maybe in particular those moments where uh, we are discouraged by the way that we've treated people that we love, the things that we've done, the things that we've not done, the ways that we've been inconsistent and undisciplined. May we remember this hope that because of the cross, we can be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And this is, this is a daily slow burn, God. Help us to be patient. Help us to rely on you. Help us, as is said elsewhere, to beat our bodies and to run as to win the race. But to recognize all along the path that you are the one who is at work. You are the Lord of the ministry. You are the Lord of the new covenant. It is your power that we need and help us to, uh, to make use of that power, to look on Christ and be transformed as we are. We love you and we thank you for these promises, these precious promises to us. May they transform us for the glory of Christ, the expansion of his kingdom, and even our own good. In Jesus' name, amen.